0: You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a pleasure to have you with us today. On this programme, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive, and we read it and we discuss it, and then we ask him or her to discuss one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. And I'm thrilled to say that my guest today is Amit Majmoudar, a poet, a novelist, whose first poetry collection, Zero Degrees, was a finalist for the Poetry Society of America's Norma Faber First Book Award, and Amit Majmoudar is also the uh, Poet Laureate of Ohio. Welcome, Amit.
1: Paul, thank you very much for having me.
0: Now, the poem you've chosen to read on the podcast is The Confusions by Christopher Reed, the great uh, English poet uh, who was a member of a school. It was a school which had two teachers or two pupils. I'm not sure if they were, each of them was a little bit of both. Christopher Reed and Craig Wren, his. his companion in arms. What's fascinating about uh, Rain and Reed is that they formed a school based on the title of a book by Craig Rain called A Martian Sends a Postcard Home. And really it was a, a poetry of outrageous simile and metaphor. They were also known as the metaphor men. Yeah. And they they delighted early on in their careers in outrageous uh, similes and metaphors, but I think that has changed a little bit now. And the Christopher Reed whom we read today is an altogether different uh, creature. What what is it about this poem, the Confusions, that you so admire?
1: Well, there's a lot of stuff in it, but for me, this poem just in the what it ends up doing is kind of teaching it at least it taught me uh, gave me the insight about the very kind of the nature of the suspension of disbelief in literature because the the form the poem takes is a paraphrase of an uh, an imaginary shakespeare play i imagine it to be an imaginary shakespeare play and by by summarizing it in this very matter-of-fact way he kind of points out the fundamental absurdity of Shakespearean plots and how they're basically well beyond belief. But the language, you can also simultaneously imagine that play or or imagine watching that play, and you just know that Shakespeare's style would put across this bad story and you'd experience it as perfectly believable and perfectly real. And Reed uses all sorts of... um, alliteration throughout the poem to make you confuse the various characters. There's Magdalena, Mirabella, Marcello. Um, he just proliferates these M characters and he makes sure that you're confused by the end of it. And then it's got just a classic, you know, last line. I mean, those are just really, really uh, killer last three words of the poem, uh, for me at least. So You know, um, Shakespeare, of
0: course, is uh, notorious for having uh – Come up with a plot of his own, as it were, on one occasion only. All all of his plots are derived from some other source. Right. It is, as you suggest, a mark of his genius that um, one could be looking at a, or experiencing a, a Shakespeare play. Um, what? Let's say, um, Much Ado About Nothing, and um, actually having difficulty in knowing from line to line what exactly is going on and yet um, having a, a fabulous time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people would say that a lot of contemporary poetry works that way. Um, a lot of contemporary poetry that, say, a lay reader might say, oh, I don't really understand this. I don't know what's going on. Um, you can still enjoy a poem uh, without knowing what's going on. And uh, I think that the Shakespeare play perhaps – not as much for his contemporaries, but certainly for us, You know, the 400 years that have passed in intervening, the way the language has changed, the way that what we're capable of responding to in real time has changed because I think that as, as audiences, we're far less receptive to metaphor in real time, imagery in real time. Um, in fact, I'd say that as audiences, we're probably more spectators now than we are audiences because you know audience comes from the word for ear spectator from the word for eye and i think that we're more attuned to visual information than we are to verbal information but we can still follow it and still have a good time still enjoy it when you take shakespeare's plots out of their context out of their language out of their poetry you realize that you know they're they're basically absurd they're they're quote unquote bad stories but when you place them back into their into their natural element, um, they work. They don't just suspend disbelief, they generate belief.
0: Would you go so far as to say that uh, subject matter in poetry is irrelevant? It doesn't really matter what the poem is about, quote unquote, since it might be about anything.
1: You know, I I, I would hesitate to make that sort of sweeping statement because then it almost implies that it, It does matter what it's about depending on the reader because some readers, uh, if the poem is about something trivial, will regard the poem itself as trivial. Other people who are more attuned to language perhaps or perhaps take pleasure in the idea of a poem being about something trivial will respond differently to it. So I I wouldn't make that universalizing statement. I think it's reader-dependent.
0: Why don't we listen to this poem, The Confusions, by Christopher Reed,
1: before we become any more confused. Marcello is betrothed to Magdalena, who believes that he is in love with Mirabella, her identical twin sister. Both, indeed, are infatuated with Marcello, who, however, unbeknownst to them, has forsworn the company of women and resolved to take monastic vows. Fleeing the city to avoid the wrath of his father, the Duke of Mantua, who has arranged the match with Magdalena for purely monetary reasons, Marcello meets on the road a young monk, Fra Martino, who is, in fact, his fiancé's sister's maid, Martina, in disguise. Martina has a plan to bring Marcello and her mistress together by means of a magic potion brewed in the mountains by an old witch, Morgana. The Duke's half sister, banished there many years before. Meanwhile, a malcontent courtier, Malcontento, has been plotting the abduction of Magdalena with two henchmen, Mufo and Mosca, instructing them to carry her off to a cave in the mountains, by chance, not far from the monastery to which Marcello and Fra Martino are bound. During a thunderstorm, They seek shelter in the cave where they find the unconscious body of Mirabella, whom Mufo and Mosca have mistaken for her sister and kidnapped in her place. In Act 2...
0: Wonderful. And I suppose on one hand we may think of this as a a representation of an intricate and outrageous narrative. On the other hand, we might think of it as representing just how our day-to-day lives might be where we really uh, many of us at least don't quite know what's happening don't quite know uh, who who's who where people fit in who what what their relations might be i mean it in some sense it's a, it's a description of being in the world
1: I, i'd agree with that and it's that's sort of a, you know a metaphorical kind of interpretation of it that i like very much
0: now um, I, there are a couple of moments here which I think are absolutely brilliant. <laughs> the uh, the fra Mart Martino, who is in fact his fiancee's sister's maid, Martina, um, which is a great a great touch.
1: Absolutely. I also like uh, how the malcontent courtier is named Malcontento. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right, and Mufo and Mosca. Mosca's a fly, I suppose. Yeah, Mosca's guy. a fly. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, The Confusions by Christopher Reed uh, which was published in the February 23rd, 2015 issue of The New Yorker. And then in the February 17 and 24, uh, 2014 issue, a double issue of The New Yorker, uh, we published uh, your poem, Amit Majmoudar, uh, your poem, Invocation, and you're going to read that for us now. Um, but... I wonder if you might take a moment just to prepare the ground a little bit and uh, let us know what uh, we might expect here. Uh, though, of course, as we're reading a poem, we don't know what to expect. We don't have any trigger warnings, for example, uh, as we embark on a poem.
1: Yeah. So, Invocation, it's actually the uh, final poem of my uh, latest book, uh, Dothead, which just came out in March. And um basically, that poem is one of the few poems that was based on uh, personal experience. Um, I'm a physician in my day job. And when I was in medical school, um, I had to do a child psychiatry rotation. And when you're a medical student on that rotation, you basically just had to go in every morning and um, you know, talk talk to these kids who had been admitted overnight. Usually, um, you know, things like attempted suicide was most frequent and and other things like that. Um, And one thing I noticed day after day was that um, their arms were somehow um, mutilated in some way or another or damaged in some way. And it was a a very kind of uh, consistent – it was an unusually consistent thing. You know, a lot of times kids are cutters and what they tend to cut is their arms – with, you know, if they're trying to slit their wrists, or if they use, um, if they inject, you know, if they shoot up drugs and stuff, um, and a lot of times they can get abscesses on their arms that would leave scars and everything. And I just noticed this pattern, and that kind of stuck with me. And then somehow or another, I guess I must have been reading Virgil at the time because um, there's this line in Virgil at the very beginning of the Aeneid where you know he says "arms and the man I sing," and um, those arms, which are you know weapons, um, those arms, and then these literal physical arms that I was seeing uh, day to day, um, they just kind of interchanged with one another. And so the first line of the poem, what you hear, what you'll hear in invocation, it relates to that, you know, arms and the man I sing. It kind of plays with that, and then I, I go on to talk about uh, about these arms.
0: Let me ask you a question uh, about that. It's a question about cultural literacy. As you embark on a poem like that,
1: mm-hmm.
0: were you at all concerned that in this modern era where, let's face it, Virgil is not to the fore mm-hmm. in the way he might have been 50 or 100 or 200 years ago, were you at all concerned that, put crudely, a reader might simply might not get this?
1: Um No. Uh, and I, I don't – there's there's no, nothing more to say about that. I mean I, I, I don't necessarily write for the, the largest possible audience and I don't necessarily imagine or, or have the fantasy that, that this work is going to have any sort of entry into the um, mass culture. And so I feel kind of liberated to – in the in the form of poetry in in particular, perhaps not in a way that I necessarily feel in the novel. Um, in poetry, just to do you know whatever I see fit. And I think that a, a poem doesn't necessarily, you know, I don't think a reader necessarily has to get every last allusion or every last reference to still have, you know some some experience of of linguistic power or poetic power. Um, and uh, you know, so so I guess the answer is just, no, I mean, I when I'm composing, I I don't necessarily worry about whether or not someone's read the same stuff as me or is going to catch the illusion or not. I would I would find that to be stifling. I think.
0: I suppose one could read the poem without uh, any sense of Virgil at all. I sing of arms and the man, or arms and the man. I sing. Of course, there it it has some currency in in. Uh, with a Shaw arms in the man. Yeah, yeah. But even that is, I mean, George Bernard Shaw is not probably not at the top of everyone's reading list these days. No. But having said that, I'd imagine that, you know, just on the level of it being about arms, the our appendages from our shoulders down, um, it probably works in that sense perfectly adequately. Would you say that?
1: I, I would hope so. I guess readers can or listeners can judge uh, judge themselves. Let's
0: hear the poem invocation invocation, which it, in itself is a reference, I suppose, to the invocation by Virgil at the beginning of the
1: Aeneid. Absolutely, invocation. The arms I sing. Forget the man. There is no other epic. Sing the arms of kids. The ones with pustules all along their veins, like runway track lights burning for a plane that blew up hours ago with no survivors. The ones with runes no parent can decipher. One message, knifed and scarred and knifed again, in a mystic tongue forgotten who knows when. The arms imprinted with a shadow grip as if the dad who grabbed and crushed had dipped his hand in black paint first. The arms with tight arcs of perforation, human bites, they get infected faster than a dog's. The toddler's arms, with both hands scalded raw, all glisteny and hog pink, swollen taught, the tantrum over, the lesson taught, two signal fires that call across a plain. The city is sacked and all the children slain.
0: Good. Thank you very much indeed. Now, that couplet at the end has a a remarkable resonance, its effect to give us the sense, uh, as in Shakespeare, of course, the the couplet that he he uses so uh, consistently at the end of uh, the sonnet, to... Um, bring things to an end.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that last couplet actually um at least in my mind or in my imagination has uh sort of an epic feel to it. Um I kind of imagined, you know, towers and sentries and lighting signal fires uh to send a message. You know, it's all that's all very it's all implicit or nebulous or perhaps only in my own brain, but uh the whole idea of a city being sacked, you know, that kind of refers to Troy being sacked because uh Aeneas founded Rome after fleeing uh the sack of troy mm-hmm. and uh and so I think that I didn't do that in, uh, deliberately at the time, but when I hit that epic image or that image that related to you know epic poetry and the sacking of cities, I stopped, and it was kind of like, all right, I'll stay. this is the end of it and, are
0: you an Auden fan by any chance
1: yeah i like I like his work a lot, yeah.
0: You know, I, I, there's something about those two lines, two signal fires that call across a plain, the city is sacked and all the children slain that make me think of Auden. Uh, not not uh, that I think that your poem is in any way derivative of Auden, uh, but I think of Auden in a positive way here. Mm-hmm.
1: I can't think of, uh, you know, a specific poem of his that, yeah, that I was uh, referring to but I can see why. I can. I think there's there's a similar um, maybe the Shield of Achilles. Are you familiar with that poem? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That may there may be some resonance with that. I think.
0: So what else might you say about this? I mean, you there, there this plain slain rhyme scheme. We have actually earlier on in the poem, we have a, a the word plain, um, plane, p l a n e, and um, in the sense of airplane. Yeah. Uh, we have the taught, taut, t a u t, and taught. So there's a bit of fun been had in the midst of that.
1: Yeah, I had never noticed that actually. To be honest with you, you're absolutely right.
0: You know, in some sense, do you? I'm going to make a suggestion to you, and I wonder how you might you might respond to it. Okay. If you you may not know about it, do you think the poem knows about it?
1: Yeah, I'm very superstitious about that. Absolutely, I'm very superstitious about that. Mainly because I, I generally compose by ear. Um, you know, I I try to have some rational basis to what I'm writing about. I kind of use it. I use rational or logical sense to make you know to to anchor and sort of guide the music in some way. But most of the time, I really just make things up as I go along, line to line. So this poem, for example, just like the majority of other things I write, was actually just made up from the first line to the last without you Know going back or inserting or anything like that. And um, yeah, that is kind of odd that taught and taught and plain and plain. Yeah, you know, the poem probably does know that, and probably at some level, you know, neurologically, there's just something that goes on with, you know, the Broca's area and Wernicke's area, you know, the various uh, neural. Uh, neurological language centers that, you know, things just interlock without you knowing it. And part of being a poet, I think, especially if you're composing musically, I think, is to kind of let go and know when to let go and allow yourself to let go um, in, the, in the act of composition. You know, that's probably one of the reasons why I write a lot of my poems at uh, very odd hours when I'm really sleepy, because I've noticed that... My logical, rational side gets weakened, and I and then I'm almost more reliant on the sounds of words and not just rhyme but also alliteration and assonance and um, just a lot of a lot of consonants to be honest with you and and then you know the poetry becomes more musical and in my opinion it gets better if I'm sleepier when I'm writing it.
0: Well, we're delighted uh, that you're not getting as much sleep as perhaps you
1: should. <laughs> uh, you <laughs> and, know what? So, Napoleon made do with like four hours, right? <laughs> so Right, well, <laughs> look how he ended yeah, up. Look how, <laughs> how he, <laughs> I don't plan but, to invade Russia anytime soon. but.
0: Well, we're delighted that you were able to spend some time with us today. Amit Majmadar, Invocation by Amit Majmadar, as well as Christopher Reed's poem, The Confusions, may be found on newyorker.com. Um, Amit Majmadar's latest book of poems is Dot published earlier uh, this year. And then uh, Christopher Reed's most recent collection is Six Bad Poets. Amit Majmadar, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Paul, thank you very much for inviting me. You can
0: subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in NewYorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is the Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlanders Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburnie Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast was produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com with help from Elizabeth Dennison.